Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development. And each Friday, we invite our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic update from our in-house economics team. So after weeks of big headlines, yesterday was dominated by unemployment, which is now at its highest level in Australia since October 2001, and the second biggest recording since the Australian Bureau of Statistics started recording records in 1978. So it just goes to show the fallout from COVID-19 is continuing to filter through our data, reverberating throughout our economy, and this latest data raises a lot of questions. However, today we're fortunately joined again by our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, whose team is ranked number one forecaster of Australian employment data by Bloomberg. So Matthew, this podcast should be a great one. Welcome again. Well, thanks, Craig, and thanks for that plug. No worries. So, mate, this week we saw some big numbers in the headlines that have just come through from the Australian Bureau of Statistics. The unemployment rate has surged to 7.1% in May from 6.2% in April, and that is the biggest monthly increase in almost 30 years. The ABS also revealed that the total number of hours worked in the economy was 10.2% lower in May than it was in March before the corona pandemic. Matthew, can you dissect for us what this all means and why there was such a significant jump in the numbers over the course of a month? It was reported by economists who were expecting just 78,000 jobs to be lost in May, which of course is significantly lower than 227,000 recorded. In our Monday Markets podcast, we heard that the unemployment rate was forecast to be 6.9%. So this is all considerably higher. What's happened? Well, the labour market is difficult to read at the moment, Craig, and, and that was reflected in the widespread of forecasts around employment, where forecasts range from uh, job losses of more than 200,000 to uh, job gains of 150,000. Our forecast at QIC was for a job loss of about 200,000, so pretty close to the actual outcome. I would point out, though, that around a third of the forecasters on Bloomberg were expecting job losses of 150,000 or more. So we weren't on our own. Um, I think the large dispersion in forecasts partly mirrors the ups and downs in sentiment in financial markets, where the reopening of economies that we're seeing has generated perhaps um, an excessive amount of optimism in the face of reality checks that we're seeing about the uh, the difficulty of containing uh, COVID around the world. Uh, in our assessment of employment growth, though, what we look at is two sources of data. Firstly, we, we look at the ABS's new weekly payrolls and jobs report data to get a sense of uh, what's been happening. And then we overlay data that we receive from QIC's assets, such as shopping centres and ports and airports, which also gives us a sense of what's going on in the here and now in the economy. Now, the ABS, ABS data and our own data were telling us that while the extent of job losses had abated since April, on average over May, employment was still down. Um, but I do think what is more difficult even than the employment numbers to get right is the unemployment rate. As you mentioned, the unemployment rate jumped from 6.2% to 7.1%. But when you look at the number of job losses that we had, 227,000, um, you could have expected the unemployment rate to jump even higher, perhaps even up to 7.9%. But what's been happening is that as workers have lost jobs, a number of those workers, and in the case of um, the latest uh, job market report for, for uh, May, um, more than half of workers who have lost their jobs 
actually give up looking for work and drop out of the labour force and therefore are not included um, amongst the unemployed by the ABS. So in May, while this the number of workers dropping out of the workforce was high by historical standards, and hence the unemployment rate didn't go up as high as it perhaps otherwise would have, it was still much less than the number of people that dropped out of the workforce in April, which was actually um, around about 400,000 people. Yeah, thank you for that, Matthew. And I suppose JobKeeper also complicates things. But when you think about the lower participation rates, the question then starts to beg, is it all doom and gloom? Are these numbers starting to show any glimpses of improvements uh, like the financial markets are clearly suggesting? Well, there is positive news. We also know from the ABS weekly payrolls report that employment looks to have found a bottom. And in recent weeks, employment has been gradually climbing. Not enough, obviously, to lift the May employment average above April, but the impact of reopening the economy uh, is showing through in the employment numbers. And the turnaround is reasonably broad-based with 12 of the 19 sectors in the report now showing employment gains. Uh, unsurprisingly, the best performing sectors are those hardest hit during the lockdown and which are now benefiting from the reopening are sectors such as accommodation, food services, education and training, retail trade, uh, real estate services are examples of those um, sectors that are starting to show good job gains at the moment. But we are still a very long way away from the start of the lockdown back in mid-March. Um, but the signs are promising and it's likely that we may in fact flip from monthly job losses in May to monthly job gains in June. And that's fantastic news, Matthew, around um, some you know fairly core areas such as accommodation, food services and, uh, and retail trade. So great to hear. Let's broaden the horizons a little bit here. So monetary policy was, of course, in the news this week with the US Fed launching its corporate credit facility, purchasing investment grade corporate bonds in the secondary market. Of course, they flagged this was going to occur a while ago, but now they started to actually do it. The Fed also, however, acknowledged that the RBA's yield curve control policy is an appealing alternative to their own QE program, so one for the Australians. However, should the RBA, Matthew, also be taking other central banks' policies seriously? For example, negative rates, corporate bond purchases, other unconventional monetary policies, considering the pressure that's on the Australian dollar currently? Well, let me take the, the uh, corporate bond purchases first. Um, the corporate bond market uh, in Australia is far less developed than in the US, um, with Australian businesses sourcing credit primarily from uh, banks. In that sense, we're more similar to uh, the Europeans and the US. Uh, now, the RBA has established a $90 billion term funding facility um, for commercial banks at, a, at an interest rate of 25 basis points to provide credit to households and businesses with the added incentives uh, to lend to small and medium-sized businesses. But this facility is relatively small in the grand schemes of things. I think there are two arguments for a negative cash rate. As you said, lowering the cash rate, which after another cut would drive the uh, cash rate into negative territory, would alleviate pressure on the Australian dollar. The second is that negative rates would pressure commercial banks to expand lending so as to avoid losses on their excess holdings of reserves with the RBA. But the move to uh, negative rates, I consider to be a last resort 
because it carries with it many risks associated with distortions to financial markets and the pricing of risk. And I believe we are still some way off conditions in Australia that would justify a negative cash rate. So unlike the situation that arose in Europe and Japan, our yield curve has a positive slope with 10-year Aussie bonds still trading at close to 1%. In contrast, the ECB and the Bank of Japan were faced with interest rates um, at zero across the entire length of the yield curve. And when this happens, unconventional policies such as QE and yield curve control become relatively ineffective. In fact, detrimental as further central bank bond purchases would drive longer dated yields negative. And an inverting yield curve um, with negative rates would destroy commercial bank lending margins. This leads to commercial banks restricting credit and precipitating a credit crunch. Uh, the way around this is to lower yields at the short end of the yield curve, which means taking uh, the cash rate into negative territory. But we're facing a positive sloping yield curve. So the RBA can actually target yields um, at the longer end of the yield curve and thereby flatten the curve without inverting it. Uh, this would be effective in lowering the Aussie dollar as more than half of the long dated Australian government bonds are held by foreigners and squeezing down those interest rate differentials at the longer end of the yield curve should reduce foreign demand for our bonds and hence for the Australian dollar. Finally, it's not clear that commercial banks really need incentives at this stage to step up loans. Unlike Europe, credit growth in Australia remains positive, so banks uh, remain willing to lend, uh, unlike their uh, European counterparts. Thanks, Matthew. That's been uh, really informative. And I was hoping I could put you a little bit on the spot now, um, just with regards to where you think things could be interesting to play out for our investors. In the last 30 seconds or so, can you give us some of the top three things that our investors should be thinking about for the week ahead? Well, I'll make it easy, Craig. I'll give you one. The exit from COVID is a long haul exit. It's not a short term exit. And I think investors need to keep that in mind. They need to look at both sides of the data that's coming out, not just the economics, but also the evolution of COVID itself. We're going to see as economies open, spurts of enthusiasm, spurts of market sentiment that get ahead of the reality of where the economies are going. So bear in mind what's happening in terms of the evolution of COVID, be mindful of the fact that there'll be ups and downs and be mindful of the fact that there will be ups and downs, both in terms of the economic data, but also in terms of market sentiment. Play for the long haul, not for the short haul. Well said. Thank you very much, Matthew, for your insights this week. Thank you to our listeners. Um, and please uh, watch out for our Monday's Market Moments podcast featuring our financial market insights from our Liquid Markets Group. And please have a wonderful weekend ahead.